You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 33. If you don't have a Bible, you can find Psalm 33 on page 463 in the Bibles in the seats in front of you. And I'm going to go ahead and read it. I hope you'll see as we arrive at the end of this psalm, where the focus of the author is. Psalm 33, beginning in verse 1, the psalmist says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his works are done in faithfulness. He loves the righteous and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart stands forever to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. You know, no matter what your religious affiliation, no matter where you are in politics, no matter where you stand or sit on the aisle of NCAA power conference realignment, as human beings who are willing to be honest we would all agree that we live in a day where we would value an increased dosage of hope. We need hope. We want hope. 
In his book, New Morning Mercies, Paul Tripp offers this as a definition of hope. It is the confident expectation of a guaranteed result that shapes our life. And we want this, don't we? We want to have a confidence in a guaranteed result of medical health tomorrow, don't we? We want the confidence of a guaranteed result that the efforts that we're placing into our careers will have a return on that investment in the future, maybe even the near future. We want to have a confidence in the guaranteed result that we will get married if we are single, that we will have a child if we are barren, that our spouse or family member will get saved, or that our nation or even the globe will experience a spiritual awakening. We want to have a confidence in that guaranteed result. And this is a good definition, but there is a word that occurs several times in this psalm and several psalms throughout the book of Psalms that is translated hope that moves the emphasis from the results to actually how it affects our motivation. The definition is this, to look forward to the occurrence of or the arrival of something or someone. The imagery is what we see in a a dog who is told that their master is coming or that sees their master through the window. That dog in their nature cannot help but be impacted by that. And what happens? The tail begins to wag. Barking begins to start and maybe a little pee goes down their leg. This is the idea of hope from the book of Psalms. That our expectation of the arrival of something or someone actually moves us. It actually impacts us. It actually motivates us. And it is a healing property. In fact, listen to what Psalm 42, 5 says. The psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope. That is the solution. As you experience depression, as you see people in your lives who are experiencing despair, the solution that the psalmist offers is not a change in their context, but instead hope. Instead, this impact of the anticipation of the arrival or the experience of something or someone Solomon says in Proverbs 13, 12, that hope impacts our souls because hope deferred makes the heart, what? Sick. So so, so here's my question. Where is your hope? Where, where, where Where is your hope? And as we said, school is getting close, and I always love this time of the year because the kids usually are like, oh, and the parents are like, thank you, Jesus. So in the vein of that impending doom for children and bliss for parents, I want to offer a pop quiz. Pop quizzes are dreaded, but they are opportunities 
to see how well we know the material. And so if you look at your notes, the big idea is this. The psalmist offers the answer key to help you put your hope in substance and not in habel or vanity that Solomon uses over and over again. So five questions on the pop quiz. Question number one, where is your joy? Where is your joy? Psalm 33 picks up right where Psalm 32 left us. I had the privilege of listening to Doug's message last week. Wow. (laughs) I told our elders I I was blessed theologically. I was blessed practically. And then, man, the guy just can preach, can he? I looked at him and I was humbled and thought, man, why, why, why am I the preacher here? His delivery was so well done. His communication was so clear. And what a blessing it was to listen to him unpack Psalm 32. But Psalm 32 is a psalm of repentance. David reflecting most likely on his sin with Bathsheba and wrestling with the spiritual conviction of that. But he ends his psalm with this resounding chord of joy, rejoicing that God, the perfect God, can forgive us as sinners and the gross and heinous sin that we commit, not just in our actions, but even in our thoughts. And he rejoices at the end. And and Psalm 33 begins with the same vocabulary, which is why I think the author of Psalm 33 is David. But look at the repetition. Verse 1, shout for joy. Verse 1, make praise Verse 2, give thanks. Verse 3, do it with a song. Verse 3, with intentional instruction, use a lyre and then a harp with ten strings. And then use your voices to make a, a melody. And there's this repetition of joy. But what is joy? Here's a definition I would propose to you. Joy is a settled disposition rooted in the character of God. You see, we, we, we talk about joy, and often we confuse joy with happiness. Happiness is, is usually an emotion that is impacted by positive circumstances, but, 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 but joy is so much more settled than that. Joy is so much more rooted than that. It is a settled disposition that is anchored in the character of God so that no matter what happens in our circumstances, it doesn't impact our joy because God never changes. This was my seventh time in Romania, and my wife's third time, and our kids' first time, and we wondered if our girls would experience what what we've experienced when we've gone over. And and whether you're in the mountains of Romania and the villages, or you're in the city of Bucharest, one thing that I've noticed in these multiple times is that the expressions on the faces of the Romanians is often stern or serious or apparently joyless, especially the older generation. And and when you think about this, if you're familiar with the history of Romania, you know that for 50 plus years, they were under communism. And in fact, Adi told me that when he was growing up, what would happen for his family is they would get a slip of paper from the government that would tell them how much bread, how much milk, and, and maybe they would get eggs that week, the Rusnak family would, would be given. And so you can imagine, 50 plus years of this would be tough. 
And and even now in Romania, the, the things that you and I take for granted are luxuries for them. And yet, what's amazing is that when you enter M28 and you see the Christians in that context, they are joyful. Their faces are joyful, and they have relatively nothing. So I had an opportunity to evaluate my joy as we arrived at our Airbnb in Bucharest. It was over 100 degrees there, and we walked into our Airbnb, and there were a couple of small fans blowing, and it was hot as blazes. And in that moment, I realized that as a dad, I did not check all of the details of the Airbnb. I felt like a failure as my girls were saying, Dad, there's no AC. And in that moment, if I could have seen a mirror, there would not have been joy on my face. Now, that's a weak illustration, but it moves us to application. There are circumstances in our lives that are painful. There are circumstances in our lives. I was texting with my assistant, Kathy, and I said, listen, I'm not complaining. And she said, yeah, over 100 degrees with no AC and fans that aren't really working, you can complain. There are circumstances that are worthy of complaining, but, but what does it do to our face? Matthew 12, 34 says that out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. The same principle applies to our face. So, so the question must be asked, where is your joy? And, and how you can tell where your joy is is by looking at your outward appearance when something you value is taken away. How you can evaluate your joy is what happens to your disposition when something you value is threatened. The psalmist assists us in verse 1. Look at what it says. Shout for joy. Look at the next phrase. Do you see it in the text? Shout for joy in the Lord. There you go. He even says, make a new song. And there's been a lot of debate. What does this mean, a a new song? I would submit to you that a new song is created as a result of the joy from reflection on the character and works of God. That's what new song is. As you reflect on the character of God, and and listen, beloved, in America, we have too small of a view of God. We do, because we are so self-sufficient. The less self-sufficient we are and the more dependent we are on the God of the universe, the more we will create a new song. I was reading this morning in Isaiah It says in chapter 26 that God will keep him or her in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on the Lord. Now that word stayed is not one that we typically use, but the word stayed means to lean. The the last night in our Airbnb, we were supposed to take out the trash. I'm deathly afraid of heights. So we were on the eighth floor, and in Romania, there aren't the same codes that there are here in the United States, which is a blessing and a challenge. And so there's this small little patio where the trash chute was that is eight stories up, 
I know that Romania has earthquakes. I know that the codes aren't in place. And so as I was leaning out on this patio, I was holding on to the building and leaning on the building. And that equipped me to be secure, to do what I would have not otherwise been able to do. That's the idea of being stayed on the Lord. But in order for us to put our full weight on the Lord, we must be convinced and understand his character as the Bible reveals it. And the more we do that, the more joy will explode in our hearts and hopefully generate a new song. But it also says that we are to play skillfully. And that word skillfully, I think, is an unfortunate English translation because for me, I would be out. (laughs) I cannot play skillfully. But the word skillfully means to deliver an appropriate level of musicality as our capacity allows as compared to the object of our singing. In other words, whatever capacity that you have to be able to sing or play an instrument, which all of us have capacity, do it to the best of your ability because the object of our singing is God. And so here we are getting to a place of evaluating where your hope is by starting with the question, where is your joy? And my prayer is, is after these three verses, it will be anchored in the character of the Lord. How can you tell? Three ways. Number one, ask someone close to you to evaluate your face. Not for the wrinkles or whether or not you're attractive. Ask someone to evaluate your face. Do I show joy on my face? Second, application. Regularly reflect on the God of Scripture and his works. We'll see that in the text. It's not just God. It's also his works. And when we do, hopefully, the prayer is is that you'll see God for how he's revealed in Scripture, not the God that we tend to construct. See, the more comfortable we are with God the more we realize we need to grow. And I'm trying to grow in this. I'm reading the book Gentle and Lowly and enjoying it, being challenged and disagreeing with it. So I'm wrestling through it. But what it's doing is it's moving me beyond this this harsh God to recognize that our God has the greatest heart. Every emotion that we as human beings experience, he experiences it perfectly. So this this is stretching me, but I need to get to know that God from Scripture And the more that I do, the more I will have joy and the more my face will reflect that. And then the third one is just draw closer to him every day. There should be days when we discover attributes of his character that would cause us to think, I can never pray to him again because he is so big, so great, so magnificent. And then there are other ones, like we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us that just makes us want to just come up to him and be close to him all the time. I promise you this is the one that takes the most time to unpack. So question number two, after we ask, where is your joy? Where is your authority? Where is your authority? Every hope implies that there's a standard. Here's what I mean by that. I can have hope that tomorrow at the door a knock will arrive, and it will be Ed McMahon. I don't even know if he's still alive. And the publisher's clearinghouse, this just dates me, but, the, but for all you youngins, the publisher's clearinghouse was the, like that was most of us, our plan for retirement. 
is that, you know, you buy these magazine subscriptions which would enter you into this drawing and then Ed McMahon would show up with balloons and, you know, millions of dollars. So I could hope for that, but, but, but there has to be some standard that actually tells me whether or not that hope is realistic or it's valid. And so we see evidence of authority in these verses peppered throughout. And, and there are three terms that I commend to you. The first one is righteous. We see that in verses 1 and 5. The second one is upright, verses 1 and 4. And the, fifth, or the third one is justice, found in verse 5. The definition of the Hebrew term that is translated righteous is an adherence to a required standard. An adherence to a required standard. The, the word upright that is translating the Hebrew term has this definition. It is the behavior that is in accordance with a standard. You seeing a consistency here? The word justice means to conform to an established standard. And what, what will you see in these three Hebrew terms is similarities, but the common denominator is a standard. And that we measure our behavior, our patterns, our motivations against that standard. I was surprised on this trip how many conversations turned spiritual. I shouldn't have been. God delights in his light being shared in dark places. What's interesting is I was reflecting on all of these spiritual conversations. I, I saw a common denominator that's illustrated by an early conversation I had with a Hindu man on the plane flying over to Europe. We had a long conversation about the Hindu religion and he was sharing with me that they actually gather on, on Sundays in their places of worship and they have a priest and they have a sacred text and what the priest encourages the worshipers to do is to share their opinions about the sacred text. And so I asked him, well, what, what is your universal standard? As you share your opinions, what, what is the standard? What, what is the authority? How, how do you know whether your opinions are accurate? And, and he responded in this way. He says, we don't have one. And he said, literally, that their goal is to be able to respect the opinions of others. And you know, initially, that sounds good. In fact, my daughter was reading the policy for students of the university she'll be attending this fall, and it sounded like this. It sounded like they believe that the biblical worldview is the standard that we should live by, but we respect other people's uh, views, and, and that's where love is conveyed. And I just told her, you know, sweetie, what they're trying to do is live on both sides of the fences. See, it sounds good that we would respect, and yes, we respect, but the problem with respecting other people's opinions is that we can stay in this, this place that the Hindu man was talking about is your opinion is just as valid as my opinion. And what ends up happening is the authority is ourselves. And that is human nature, beloved. And so I never should violate scripture in responding to the opinion of someone else, but I still can tell them, no, actually, that's not right. 
You see, because human nature is found in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, isn't it? We live according to our desires. We live according to our lusts and our passions. And our own authority is the standard by which we measure everything. And that's why here in America, we tend to follow the authority so long as it matches our authority. But as soon as it doesn't, what do we do? We protest, we push back, or we just rebel. And I think what the psalmist is doing here is he's reminding us that there is a universal standard. And he actually gives us what that is. Look at verse 4. The word of the Lord. You see it in the text. See, I'm not making this up. This is not my musings. It's the text. It's the word of the Lord is the authority. Beloved, Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify my disciples by truth. There's authority, there's standard. And then he explains what truth is. The source of truth is your word. And if Pilate would have just been able to read John 17, he would not have had to ask the question that he did just a chapter later, which is what is truth? And the world is asking what is truth, but they're answering it by my truth. And so apparently is the Hindu religion. So all of these spiritual conversations seem to boil down to the issue of authority. The psalmist says it's the word of the Lord. But it's also his works. Do you see that in the text, verse 4? And God's works are intended to affirm his word. That's very important because I hear people talk about experiences that they have in in their life. And they, they assign an authority to those experiences that is often equal or even greater than scripture. But the works of God are intended to affirm scripture. So if you've had an experience and you think that it is God who did it or that it's God who spoke to you, not here to debate that. I'm here to debate your conclusion. And that is, does it match Scripture? Because God's works always affirm Scripture. God's word is the foundation of truth. And and, and here it is, right here in the text. So where is your authority? How can you tell? Two ways. One, are you studying and submitting to the authority? I'm going to speak to the men right now in our church. Because this is a constant refrain over the last 13 years in small group. For some reason, we men struggle with a daily discipline of studying and submitting to the word. But we don't struggle with knowing what's going on in the Big 12. We don't struggle with knowing what's going on in politics. We don't struggle with a lot of fill-in-the-blanks. And so, man, what what I'm compelling you to do is start with the duty of eating the daily bread. Start there. Because if we wait till we have emotions and we feel like it, we're we're dudes. We're not going to get there. Start with the discipline, then get brothers in your life where you're staying accountable with, sharing the joy, the new song of what you're discovering, challenging one another. And I'm telling you, by my own example, as somebody who walks toward not doing this in my flesh, that it can be done by God's grace and for his glory. So we study and submit to it daily, but then second, process the events in your life through the character of God. 
that everything that is happening in your life, good, bad, or indifferent, is ordained by God. And when that happens and you see it that way as God's word reveals it, then you see everything that's happening through the lens of God's character. And you know what's interesting about that? That that, that discovery is actually something that will take away selfishness and actually will impact your anxiety and your fears because you're seeing it through the lens of the authority of God's word and his character. So we ask, where is your joy? Where is your authority? These are important questions in our pop quiz as we advance toward hope. Number three, where is your theology? These verses are the epicenter of the psalm. If you've been following along in our series, you've learned about what a chiasm is. If, if that's new to you, just listen to some messages from a few weeks ago, and you'll see it very clearly. But a chiasm is a way that the authors would write and they would draw their attention to the center as the main point. That's, that's this. This is the main point of this psalm, and it is theology. Ben reminded us during his message that Martin Luther called the psalms a mini-Bible, and many of the psalms quickly summarize the flow of the Bible or God's character in a broad brushstroke, and, and that's what's happening in these verses. But before we unpack the verses, let me ask you this question. This book that we're studying or that you have on your app, what is it to you? Is it it a religious book that is to be respected? It's sacred? Is it a book that has amazing stories and some difficult sections that are hard to understand, but at least it's a good guide for us to live by? Maybe you would say it's, it's the word of God and thereby the authority of my life. Here's what I would submit to you. The Bible is the source of absolute truth for who God is, who we are, and what his plans are for redemptive history. This ancient text that we're studying week after week, that we invite you to study on a daily basis, that we unpack in our small groups, is this. It's the source of absolute truth about God, about humanity, and his plan for redemptive history. And as best as I can tell, that pretty much covers everything. And ultimately, this is what theology is. Theology is the study of these three topics, these three categories It's connecting the facts, the the story of David and Goliath, the the Leviticus uh, 13 chapter that talks about skin diseases, the baptism of Jesus by John, the death, the resurrection of Christ, the transition of the church, the epistles. It's all these facts that are connected together to understand God, understand humanity, and his plan for redemptive history. That is the Bible. That is theology. And so when we study it, we have opportunities to be informed and then live accordingly in these three categories. That's what we see here. And it begins in verse 6, by a pretty universal statement, and it says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Do you see it in the text? This, This is the Bible's claim about everything that we can see. The Bible claims that everything was created by God, so if you don't believe that, well, it tells us something about your view of Scripture. 
But if you do believe that, then by the very nature that he created everything, he therefore has authority to determine the standards, the expectations, the rules. And so this is a strong initial statement that sets up theology that begins with the character of God. We must start here. He is the supreme authority in the universe. But then he gives us four other categories of authority. I would encourage you to pencil these down. He has authority over creation. Look at verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. And I love this because it ties into Mark 4.41. This was something that the ancients understood. The ancients viewed the sea as a place of chaos, as a source of evil. And so for God to be able to control this was a statement of authority. And this is why when Jesus was in the boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and there's this massive storm, and he simply speaks, and boom, the sea is still. The the disciples say, who is this? That even the seas, still got it, sorry Dana, even the seas obey. It is only God who has the authority over creation. But friends, this is not intended to to just simply be a, a truth that we learn and academically understand. Look at verse 8, let all the nations fear. The Lord. It's, it's the Hebrew term Yerah, which means to respect, to value, to highly esteem. Let all the nations fear and worship and see God for who he is. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And when we reflect on the authority that God has over creation. Y'all, I, I can just sense right now, you're saying, man, this guy's fired up. <laughs> I haven't preached for three weeks. Well, actually, I did, but not with our people. So thank you. Thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for for enduring my maybe overly zealous passion, but this is awesome. Thank you, Baptist brother. (laughs) But we're intended to be awed by this. So if you ever find yourself getting stale in your view of God, just start reflecting on his authority over creation. But then the psalmist also reveals his authority over the sustaining of creation. This is interesting. He spoke, verse 9, and it came to be. And most of us grasp that, but do we keep thinking about verse 9? He commanded and it stood firm, meaning that the earth and creation continues to stand firm despite all of the mess that is going on. Despite all of the evidence that might argue differently, that there's hurricanes and earthquakes and all of this stuff, it continues to stand firm, doesn't it? And that's what Colossians 1.17 says, is that it is Christ who is holding everything together. You know what this is? This is a picture of salvation. Oh, isn't this awesome? This actually just came to me. But you know how God spoke the earth, and that was a past event, and it continues, though, today. Same with the gospel. The gospel is not just a past event where death became life, and then we just kind of live a July 4th reality from time to time, pointing back 
to that independence thing. No, no, no. We live in light of the independence. It continues to grow us to be like Christ. So we celebrate the authority of God in sustaining creation. But then also we see his authority over the nations. Look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations. Does anybody remember Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. And the kings of the earth take counsel together. And he who sits in the heavens, what? He laughs. Man, there's a lot of counsel of the nations going on today, isn't there? How many of you are tired of hearing about it in the news? Remember this. The nations are assembling against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Would you write down Daniel 2.21? Because this is a great illustration of God's sovereignty. And I know God's sovereignty is a topic that we we struggle with it as human beings. I struggled for years with it. And I've had to study it. And I continue to study it. But listen to what Daniel 2.21 says. God raises kings and he tears them down. Plug in presidents. And so when you get really angry about the president that we have or get fearful about the next president or what the indictments and all of this stuff means it's all a surface issue. What's going on below the scenes and behind the scenes is the God of the universe has authority. Amen? He brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. It's the Lord's counsel that stands forever. It's his plans that continue throughout all generations, and haven't we been seeing that in the book of Revelation? Okay, one more category of authority as we construct the theology of Psalm 33. He has authority over humanity. Look at verse 13. He speaks to the children of, literally in the Hebrew, Adam or Adam. This means that everyone is contained in this statement and what follows. And if that wasn't enough, verse 14 says, all the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 14 reminds us that he fashioned, verse 15, our true self. Eyes up here. There's so much study in our world today about personalities, about disorders. Be reminded of this fact, that the creator fashioned your personality. The creator fashioned your skill set. The creator fashioned your gender. And so listen, we know you will struggle in your life through a lot of different experiences. You will question, why do I have this? Why am I made in this way? And those are valid questions. And God wants you to ask those questions, but he gives you the answer. And the answer is don't change your gender. The answer is affirm it to the glory of God. 
He fashioned our true self. That's what the word translated heart means. Our true self, which includes our personality, our skills, our physical features, our our gender. And, And what does he do with all of this? Verse 13, he looks. Verse 13, he sees. Verse 14, he looks out. And the Hebrew terms that are used here means he's investigating. This is not just a passive observance. He is in the heavens, Psalm 2-4 tells us, but he, in his omnipotence, omniscience, he sees with investigative principles, and then it says in verse 15, he observes, he knows intimately. That should both scare us and delight us. My question to you, beloved, is this your theology? How can you tell? Well, the psalmist helps us. He talks about a heritage. He talks about following the Lord's counsel. He talks about us being chosen in verse 12. And all three of these are important because of what the rest of Scripture tells us. Psalm 1, 1 through 2 tells us that blessed Verse 12 tells us blessed. Blessed is the individual who does not function according to the laws of the city of man. That's what Psalm 1-1 means. Blessed is the person who does not seek the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scoffers. But, verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord and it's in God's law he meditates day and night. He, He seeks after God's counsel. And in so doing, demonstrates that he is the heritage of the Lord. And in so doing, demonstrates that he is chosen, which is interesting. Let me give you a couple verses. You can study this during the week. 1 Peter 2.9 uses the same vocabulary. You are a holy nation. You are a royal nation. You are chosen by God. So, So here's what this means, is that this terminology means that we can tell if we are God's people if we are functioning with patterns of being prophets, priests, and kings according to his design. That's how you can tell. So we, we, we have dived, 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 dove? You can tell me after the service. We did a diving activity <laughs> deep, as Doug said last week, into theology. I hope some of this has stretched you. Hopefully it's just reminded you. Hopefully it's expanded your view of this God that we are worshiping this morning, that we will sing at the end of the service how great thou art. Hopefully this will inform us a little bit more than if we hadn't studied this. But our God is great, and that is theology. And when we see that, we better understand who we truly are, and then we better appreciate and long for his plan for redemptive history to unfold exactly the way he intended Fourth question, where is your confidence? By the way, verse 12, I got to go back. I often thought that verse 12 was like the formula that if our nation would follow this, that God would bless us, but this has nothing to do with the United States. It has nothing to do with an earthly government. It has everything to do with two cities that have started in the Garden of Eden and continue today and will until the New Jerusalem, and that is the city of man and the city of God. So what this is saying is if you function as a citizen of the city of God, you will be blessed. If you function like the other nations, you will be cursed. That's what verse 12 means. Okay, on to number four. Question four, where is your confidence? 
And it's easy to miss the point because of the gap between our modern context and the ancient context. But let's just live in the ancient context for just a moment. Verse 16. The king is not saved. A king would depend on his army. And the stronger his army, the stronger his confidence. And then when you drill down into the army and you see the individual warriors, the the, the warrior would have a confidence in their skills or their resources, including what verse 17 says, the war horse. A strong war horse in the ancient world was like, you know, whatever the strongest weapon is in our our arsenal today. Like, you're not going to beat it. But what the psalmist does is take this ancient context and allow us to be able to bridge to our modern context to ask the question, where is your confidence? I used to work in the mutual fund industry, which mutual funds are just a portfolio of stocks. And I remember our managers would constantly watch the stock market. And as things were going up, boy, were they excited. I'm going to retire at 40. I've already got the boat picked out. And then when the stocks were down, stern faces. And then September 11th happened. So where's your confidence? Maybe some of you, it's in your investments. Maybe others of you, it's your skill set. Maybe others of you, you're anticipating an inheritance from your, your family. Maybe some of you have got accepted into a, a college that you're, you're confident will give you a good job and then a good path in life. Where is your confidence? Verse 17 tells us that there is a false hope that we can have when our confidence is in the wrong place. And what this is setting up is the, the last question that will bring this all together. And, and, and that is that if we are placing our confidence on anything the, the world offers, it is a false hope. It is wrong. It is empty. Which brings us to question number five. Where is your longing? Verse 20 drills down below the surface. It says, our soul. This is our innermost self, which we guys don't like to talk about. Verse 21, our heart feels joy. You ever have a day when you just don't feel like it? Maybe this morning was that day. Beautiful, cooler weather this morning. It was sunny. Maybe you just didn't feel like coming to church. Do you know that if you ever are willing to acknowledge that, you're in good company? Because the psalmists often didn't feel like it. The patriarchs didn't feel like it. The prophets didn't feel like it. And dare I say, sometimes Jesus didn't feel like it. And you say, that's sacrilege. Write down Mark 14, verses 32 through 36. You can look at this later. Jesus wanted the cup to pass from him. There are times when we just don't feel like it. Now, what I'm saying is this quote, that longings are intended to be motivated by truth, not feelings. That's that's what I'm saying, is we, we can acknowledge that sometimes the longings aren't there. We can acknowledge that the motivation isn't there. And what the psalmist tells us, what the rest of Scripture tells us, is that the longings don't drive the train. Truth does. It's not saying we don't have emotions. It's not saying we don't have longings. It's just saying put longings in their proper place. 
And so what the psalmist is doing here is he's talking about longings by using soul, by using heart, but then he focuses us on where those are to be rooted. Verse 20, our soul waits for whom? The Lord. The psalmist rehearses truths about God's character. He is our help and our shield. Verse 21, our heart, our innermost self, our longings are glad in him because we trust in his holy name and the name was the representation of his character. Verse 22, let your steadfast love, this is the Hebrew term chesed, which is his covenant love, which is constantly used in reference to his love for Israel. This is his character on display. That is what anchors our hope. Our hope, then, is in God. You see, when this happens, we can tell that it affects us. Verse 18, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. We will be patterns in our lives of worship. Our hope is in his steadfast love, meaning that our hope can never be deferred when our hope is in him because his promises are yes and amen in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1. We have the confidence that he will deliver our soul from death. That doesn't mean that we won't get cancer. Doesn't mean that we won't experience pain in our lives. What it means is it will never derail our faith. And in the ancient context, what they feared most was famine. It says God will keep them alive in famine, meaning he will provide exactly what they need, even in the most dire circumstances. Wow, this is the bedrock of true hope. 